I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. So Mark, today we're going to be thinking about why should companies care about using and deploying ethical AI? And I think it's an interesting question because we're asking companies to think about something that's not necessarily within their purview. Ethics is really a separate field in many ways than companies generally operate. And and here we're asking them to delve in not only in a new concept, but in the new space of AI. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about why we should be asking this question? I, I think it's such an interesting and important topic because what I see is that the business case for AI has become very clear to a lot of companies. AI can uh, make operations more efficient. It can accelerate um, all kinds of different processes. It can improve accuracy. So there are all these different reasons why businesses might adopt AI. And it's becoming very clear to them, and they are adopting it en masse. Uh, What I think has trailed behind that is an understanding of what the challenges are and what the ethical and governance issues are AI can raise if it's not implemented responsibly. And so there's this really interesting gap between the excitement about AI for all of the positive business benefits it can bring to companies, and then these very real risks and very real harms that could eventuate if that AI is not used well. And so to me, today's conversation is really about exploring that space in between um, the excitement and the opportunity that AI presents and then all of these risks that need to be managed. And I think this is something we're gonna be seeing more of in the coming years. And I can't think of anyone better to walk us through the intricacies of it than than Kathy O'Neill. I couldn't agree more. Let's jump in. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Kathy O'Neill, a mathematician, data scientist, and author. She, I'm very fortunate to say as a friend and invaluable senior advisor to Equal AI, also a connoisseur of exquisite bourbons and cocktails. She is a matriarch in the exploding and significant field of algorithmic bias. Kathy has a PhD in mathematics from Harvard, taught at MIT and Barnard, and founded and runs the algorithmic auditing company, Orca. She also posts on her popular blog that you should all check out, mathbabe.org. Kathy's book, Weapons of Math Destruction, quickly became a New York Times bestseller and is essentially a quick way to get a master's degree in algorithmic bias and weapons of math destruction. So she is supremely qualified to answer the question that we are exploring today. Kathy, why should companies care about using and deploying ethical AI? Well, gosh, you didn't start with an easy one. Um, I would say that like, because everyone should be concerned about ethics. And um, I mean, it's like hard to make the case that we should not be concerned about being ethical. I guess I guess the, the particular reason why companies need to think about it now is because so many technology companies are having such an outsized impact on, uh, on, the, on the public, on the world um, because of the advent of you know, big data, technology, predictive algorithms, machine learning, that kind of thing that lets them scale like massively. So if the, if something is slightly wrong and you scale it to millions or billions of people, then it goes terribly, terribly wrong. 
So that's why they should be particularly cognizant of their sort of ethical ramifications. I will also tell you that not all of them are. Um, you know, that that's just like a slightly different um, that's a slightly different question, though. Well, so I think that uh, that's a, that's a great place to to dive in from, and maybe you know before we get into some of the the nitty gritty details of um, of you know how and why companies can be more ethical with their use of AI, uh, maybe you can just start by telling us a little bit more about your story. Kind of why do you care about this issue? How did you get involved? Your background is in mathematics, um, and you've become a, a sort of trenchant. Uh, social critic and 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 writer, and could you just maybe tell us a little bit about your own journey in this space? Yeah, well, I mean, so I was a mathematician, like really pure number theorist, um, and then I decided, hey, why don't I just go work for a hedge fund? This was two thousand six, so I I did. I worked as a um, you know a quant um, with with like developing algorithms to trade futures. Um, and I started just when the credit crisis was beginning, its initial rumblings. That wasn't really known to the public. It was August 20, 2007. Um, and then by the 2008, a year later, everyone knew about it and it was a big mess. And, you know, I felt like I felt like I was part of a system that I didn't really want to be part of, you know. So that was my first introduction to sort of realizing that it's not just about wanting to have impact. It's wanting to have positive impact on the world. That really matters. Um, because as a mathematician, a pure mathematician, I felt kind of like impotent. And so this allowed me to feel, you know, potent, I guess, but it, it didn't allow me to feel good about that. So that's kind of where the ethics awakening happened inside me. I then decided to help try to help with like developing better risk models because that's one of the stories that you could have heard at the time that went wrong. I even worked on the credit default swap risk model at Risk Metrics, which was at the time like the you know risk firm that that, that evaluated everybody's financial portfolio risk. But I pretty quickly realized like that wasn't going to be solved the actual problems that it was not a really a math problem. It was a political pro will problem that was going on. So I decided to leave finance, start my blog, basically as a warning to other mathematicians, don't, don't do what I did, you know? And I just became a data scientist, which is at the time like this new, like very, very hopeful, bright eyed and bushy tailed industry. You know, this is back when Google was like, don't be evil. And we, we took them quite seriously. It was like 2011 or something when I took the job. And I very quickly realized that I was once again part of a system, developing a system, improving its techniques, its methodologies that was actually counter, counter to my stated ethics. Um, essentially, I was using the same techniques I had used to prevent, to predict markets, to predict human, human you know, activity. But instead of sort of saying, oh, you know, looking for statistical patterns in past markets or in other markets, I was looking for statistical patterns in humans sort of activity on websites. And I was, in particular, I was very aware that what I was really doing was, was sort of segregating people by class and 
primarily and by secondarily by gender, by race, um, by geography, and that I was like part of a large machine that was giving opportunities to people that were demographically privileged and denying opportunities to people that were demographically unlucky. So I was like, wow, this is like the financial crisis, but worse because it's like, at least everyone noticed the financial crisis. Whereas like right now people are being failed by these algorithms that sort of shuttle them from one system to another. Um, but they don't even know it because they're hidden. They're hidden. Like you go to a credit card website and it decides based on what it knows about you, which kind of credit card offers to show you. It's like a different website depending on how you appear as a profiled individual, you know? So it's like people don't even know what they don't know. So anyway, uh, that's when I started getting really curious. I was also part of Occupy. So I started getting kind of in, in tune with things beyond financial inequality. So I was thinking about more like power structures and gender and race issues. And I, the more I researched into um, like big data algorithms, predictive algorithms, algorithms of opportunity, like I described, the more I realized this, this stuff could be really problematic. And it could really be propagating all the historical biases that we have been trying to um, improve ourselves upon. Like it could just be propagating them into the future, but this time we like, we it's automated. And that's no good. That's not an improvement. So that might be a, a long answer to a short question, Mark. I hope that's okay. That's fantastic. I think it's it's incredibly helpful as as context and and just to um, you know to get us up to speed on on what has been a really incredible journey. Uh, Miriam, uh, I'll give you the next question. Well, thank you, Mark. So, Kathy, in your discussion and in your book you show how algorithms can be used to oppress masses, to discriminate, to it can be used to hold back people who are already vulnerable and underserved. When you're talking to senior executives, how are you translating why they need to care about it, how this is an issue that impacts them, their product, their lives? Well, the very first thing is I don't suspect people for intentionally doing this stuff. So um, it's important that I don't, I don't go in like with an accusatory wagging finger to, you know, potential clients for my auditing firm. I assume that people would like to do the right thing, that they are essentially ethical people. They probably wouldn't have hired me otherwise. Um, and it's also not completely obvious how to deal with you know, imperfect algorithms because algorithms, it's not, you know, it's not just the public that's been told that algorithms are trustworthy and objective. It's everyone. So including the CEOs who are not always technical people. So, uh, you know, so the first thing is to sort of disentangle like this authority from reality and to also sort of like remove the intimidation factor Sort of, so I sort of explain how algorithms could just unintentionally be picking up bias, um, and of course, in order, in terms of how to make those people care about it, I think it helps if there's a law that they might be <laughs> non-compliant with. So, um, you know, like in in regulated industries like insurance or credit or hiring, um, 
it's pretty you know it's pretty concrete like how do you know if your algorithm is compliant with existing anti-discrimination law that's a very concrete concern that um most people in those industries are actually worried about now having said that i alluded earlier to the fact that that doesn't necessarily mean they are doing something about it this is changing actually this is changing quickly um i am happy to stay and i hope it continues to change but you know in the last administration let's put it that way a lot of the time i would get on a call with a concerned data scientist who'd read my book who was working in one of these regulated industries and then the second call i'd have with them the legal counsel would be there saying you know what we don't want you to know we don't really want you to do these tests we don't really want to know if this isn't quite working and there was a sort of a assumption of plausible deniability you know that they can hold on to this as long as possible now that's changing um, the last sales call I had was with a general counsel who was like, we got to get ahead of this. And that's really helpful. So there's, I guess what I'm su suggesting is that there are tangible reasons to care. There are human reasons to care because people are, just want to do the right thing. But there's also an obstacle to caring, which is um, this kind of the sense of responsibility and like their fear that they might find a problem they don't know how to fix. And then that problem that problem might be an existential risk to their business. That's really fascinating. The the idea that sometimes there's a sort of strategic ignorance that um, you know uh, uh, an individual or a company might want to adopt so that um, they can have that plausible deniability. Uh, I'm really curious as you do this work and as you talk to executives and others, and they ask you about ethical AI. You know, how how would you define that? To, to them or, or, or to the general public, you know, what, what makes AI ethical? That's a really important question. Um, and the answer is, it is kind of a misnomer. It's not that the algorithms are audited. It's not that the AI is ethical or not ethical. It is the context in which algorithms or their outputs are actually used that could be uh, ethical or unethical. So that's what the number one principle of my company is that, um, you know, we we audit algorithms in a given context. Um, you know, one of the one of the audits that I'm allowed to talk about because most of my clients are under NDA, but like we 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 worked with the Department of Licensing in Washington State, and we audited their use of facial recognition software, which they kind of have to use um, because of uh, federal law. The Real ID Act after 9/11. Anyway, so they have to use it. So they want to make sure they're using it properly. And you know, they have tons of human oversight, like double check, triple check before they burden somebody who's being suspected of fraud, which is basically how they use it. They really, really make sure that that they're right before you know they 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 don't trust the algorithm, and it's a flawed algorithm, so it doesn't deserve. All that I mean, it's pretty good, but it's like doesn't deserve pure trust. But they, you know what I mean? They work within that parameter to make sure that they're they're not burdening people. Whereas there's another example with facial recognition software, once again, the same algorithm, where there was like this police department that had facial recognition, some guy held up a 7-Eleven or something and was like described as looking like Woody Harrelson. So they didn't have a picture of him, but they put Woody Harrelson's picture into the machine and came up with some guy and arrested him based on that. You know, it's like the most irresponsible possible use of facial recognition. So like to, to your question, Mark, like we, you know, it is not the fact, the case that 
facial recognition is or is not ethical. It's the way it's being used, um, the, the harms that it can bestow on people because of the context that could be unethical. And the other thing I would say about um, ethics is like, if we could make everything work for everyone, then there would be no ethics to really debate. So what I like to point out is that the real question isn't um, like, why isn't, you know, is, isn't like, make, can you make your algorithm even more accurate? The real question we should be asking is, for whom does this fail? What does it mean to fail? There are different stakeholders in this, like the and what success looks like for the person using the algorithm isn't necessarily what success looks like for the people that are targeted by the algorithm. And then what you when you when you realize that there's many stakeholders with many different kinds of desires, just think about hiring. Like the person hiring is different has different definitions of success than the people trying to get hired, right? As soon as you realize that this it's really a conversation among stakeholders, you realize that ethics is there, right? Because you're going to be balancing the desires of different stakeholders which who have conflicting goals and that's what ethics really is it's right it's a balancing of of different stakeholders definitions of success if everyone could be happy completely then we wouldn't have a difficult situation we have a difficult situation because we actually have different stakeholders with different desires and that's the conversation i want to have with my clients that's the conversation we're not having in fact, sometimes I say like algorithms are often taking like taking the place of the difficult conversations we don't want to have. And sort of my my idea with ethical AI or with auditing is is to actually go ahead and have those conversations that the AI is trying to uh, bypass. So how does an audit work? What what does one sign up for when they're agreeing to be audited and how does it differ from your ideal that you're just talking about as opposed to uh, the reality of what an audit looks like today? Well, I don't know what an audit looks like today. <laughs> I mean, it's a new field, so it's kind of making it up. But um, the short answer is we, we ask that question. Um, this is a question I just told Mark about. We ask, like, for whom does this fail? Who are the stakeholders? What does it mean for them for this to succeed and for fail or to fail? And like, to what extent is it failing for them? So that requires bringing people in who represent those stakeholders. So it's basically a facilitated conversation. It used to happen around a big table, right? But in COVID times, it happens over a million Zoom talks. But we listen to different stakeholders. Like if, if customers are a stakeholder, then get somebody to represent customers, hopefully some customers, or at the very least, people who work with customers, like customer care representatives. Um, legal counsel is always a representative because there's always going to be some issue around, um, is it compliant? Um, and then there's the business. And so so we have the, these conversations with all the different people who care one way or another about the success or failure of this algorithm. And then we sort of build up that sort of matrix of stakeholders and their concerns and we say what are the things that could really be existential threats and we rank them and we sort of say okay we got to focus on these four things and here's what we're going to do here's the statistical test we're going to run or the data we're going to collect or the policy we're going to enact to mitigate this problem that's that's fantastic and sounds like really hard but important work i'm curious you mentioned that some of your work is under NDA, so obviously we wouldn't ask you to share that, but um, 
is there a, a, an example you can walk us through of kind of how you implemented that approach and how it changed the outcome of, 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 of an AI system or implementation, you know, how it became more ethical as a result of the audit? Well, I, I'll, I'll just mention again the um, Department of Licensing example, um, which is that we talked to immigrant groups about their concerns that immigrants and a particular undocumented immigrants might get um, in more trouble and have an undue burden um, with the facial recognition software, in part because they have darker skin and it's known that facial recognition doesn't work as well for darker skin, but in other parts for other reasons around their, their documentation status. And what was cool was like we had this, that was back in the before time, so it was like a table, you know, and a lot of their questions were answered in real time by the people who really, really knew how this worked because they were doing it. And a lot of our recommendations were more along the lines of rec of communication. Like, here's how you communicate what you're actually doing. And like, so people can feel less threatened. So you don't have the situation where people in a sanctuary state like Washington don't even get a license because they're afraid of the system or being like caught by ice or something like that. So we had a way, uh, our solution literally was mostly communication. So Kathy, I'm curious, you're describing your experience. It sounds like a positive, productive one with the state government. Um, and you also in your book give us such interesting details about how algorithms were not productive in some government situations, such as as they were used in the public schools, evaluating teachers, um, yeah. as opposed to in the corporate space when algorithms are deeply interrogated and tested and constantly iterated and updated like with Siri. Mm. So if you were talking to President Biden's team, what would you advise them on the most important steps they could take to address algorithmic bias and reduce these concerns of weapons of math destruction? Well, so I agree with you that one of the differentiating features of the teacher assessment model called the value-added model, which was essentially a random number generator, um, and the stuff you hear about like Google search or something is just the technological sophistication and like the updating minute by minute. Um, but that doesn't mean they're being interrogated in this in this sort of ethical sense, right? In in the sense that we were discussing, which like like for whom is this failing? That, that I wouldn't say that corporate corporations have a better track record than uh, than government agencies on interrogating the, with the hard questions. They're very good at sort of updating. Um, but to your question, what would I recommend to the Biden administration? Um, I actually wrote a Bloomberg piece about this last week, and uh, it was like dear Rohi Chopra letter to like the guy who's been nominated to run the CFPB. And like, you know, the, the, the short answer is I want regulators to start enforcing laws in the age of the algorithm. Like right now it's just, as I said, like a way of bypassing a bypassing and it's still plausible deniability. So what the, the best thing that could happen and the lowest hanging fruit, in my opinion, is that for the Biden, all the regu federal regulators to define what it means in a friendly, sort of machine friendly way, define what it means for a hiring algorithm to be compliant with fair hiring laws, for a insurance uh, algorithm, health insurance algorithm to be compliant with all of the relevant laws, et cetera, et cetera. Like actually define it. And in a way that a company that works in this industry 
can check, can monitor their algorithms that they're being compliant and they can, they can start providing evidence, a data trail, if you will, that yes, yes, we're following this rule and here it is and here's the evidence that we've been following it. Um, either that or that they hand over their algorithms to the regulators who then test test them amongst these rules, against the rules. And, and when I say the rules, it's like, those are hard to make, but they're not impossible. Like I have worked for attorney general's offices on these like predatory lending cases. And at the end of the day, in order to like convince the judge that it was in fact predatory and in, in fact, to convince the judge to like send restitution back to some of the people that were harmed, we have to sort of pre present sort of quantitative evidence like this is illegal and here's how we know it. And that, that's kind of a rule. Like, so you can take precedent in a case like that and say, oh, we're, gonna, we're not gonna forget this learning and until the next time we have a bunch of complaints about a particular lender, we should, instead of being reactive with this rule that we went to the trouble of figuring out, we should be proactive. So every, like, if it's like, oh, your effective APR with that so-called insurance product on top of it, you know, was 500%. Like, so why don't we have a monitor in place for payday lenders? What is your effective APR in, in, in addition to your stated APR? This is something that I think the CFPB is perfectly poised to to start these kinds of like proactive um, monitors um, for for lenders, but I think that could happen in every every one of those regulated industries I mentioned. That's fantastic, and I think it it, it raises um, an issue that that Miriam and I have talked a lot about, which we'd be curious to to get your thoughts on, and and then I think after that we can um, we can wrap up and and, and give you back your time. Um, there's this tension in the discussion about policy around AI between creating new laws and regulations versus enforcing the existing ones to this new domain of AI. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on kind of what the, the balance ought to be between those two things. How much new policy, new law, new regulation should we be thinking about and making versus prioritizing enforcing existing protections, for example, in consumer finance to this new set of use cases that are fueled by AI. Right, and I do think it's like, it's, it is a, my opinion that we absolutely should start with the existing law and, and you know we haven't done it yet, right? So why think about new laws that we could create if we're not even bothering to make sure that the way we're doing hiring in this coming return to work phase we're going through is fair, right? Like, like let's get our priorities in order. We already have laws, let's just enforce them, you know, but we have to figure out how to enforce them and exactly how that will look like. Having said that, of course, there are new problems, you know, that have been introduced by Facebook in particular, but other social media platforms as well of, you know, that, that relate to section 230 and to misinformation and to sort of getting going down rabbit holes. YouTube is another big example. And I actually, I'm glad that I'm not a policymaker right now um, because I don't even know what the rules should be. I think it's really tricky. Um, it's really, really tricky. So, but yes, I, I, I do think it's a very urgent problem. So I, I don't wanna just sort of 
sit around. Um, I don't want everyone to sit around and 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 wait for the inf- existing laws to be enforced before thinking about that. But I would like to be in the group that does the easy stuff um, and have smarter people than me figure out how to, how to deal with with misinformation um, in algorithms. Besides, maybe just shutting down Facebook, which I'd be okay with. Well, I think we're going to have to have a problem. We're going to have a problem if we have to find people smarter than you to solve the problem. So I hope that is not the solution. Um, so Kathy, thank you so much for your time here. Uh, one thing we'd love to hear from you, you know, you and I often talk about what we're excited about in this space. Uh, concerns we have are a predominant conversation. Um, and one thing we like to wrap up with in our podcast is our bud, our rose and our thorn. So what are you excited about in this space? What are you fearful of? And what are you looking forward to? What's your bud? I mean, I can, can the, the answer to all three be um, the Biden administration and how they <laughs> respond to, um, you know, algorithmic discrimination and other kinds of, um, you know, the, it's exciting. It's scary. Um, it's potentially really cool if they if they go about it in a reasonable way. I mean, I really think that there's interest, um, and I think it's 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 possible. But I'm a little bit afraid to be too optimistic. So I think it's all all the same answer. Sorry for being boring. There's nothing boring about you, Kathy. I think that is a fair answer. And uh, I hope we can check back and, and get your take on, on whether your optimism has been uh, merited. Uh, what, what continuing thoughts do you have on this uh, ongoing saga? <laughs> Thank you, Miriam. I guess the other thing I'm looking forward to is, is playing with my band once, once all, everyone's been vaccinated and inviting you over for some bourbon. Well, cheers. You too, Mark. You're invited, Mark. We would love to, and we're gonna, we, you know, we're gonna need some 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 intro music for the for the podcast. So, um, <laughs> so when you're ready to to do a bit of recording, let us okay. know, and we'll, we'll Excellent. figure it out. That'd be fun. Perfect. That would be really fun. I look forward to that. Cool. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thanks, guys. Nice Take to care. talk to you. Great to see you. So, I, I was um, so struck by the constant uh, conversation we have about applying the laws on the books. And again, taking on this concern that we've heard about before of thinking about who is not optimized for in the algorithm you're deploying. What are your, what are your takeaways from the conversation with Kathy? Well, firstly, I think Kathy is just fantastic. So thoughtful, so provocative and, and, and just so, um, you know, kind of human centric in her in her approach. She really puts at the center of her analysis uh, the people who are affected by AI systems, including especially uh, the most vulnerable people uh, who could have the most adverse uh, impacts um, on them from AI. So I, I just think that's fantastic. I think that is encapsulated in her question, which she put to us, which I think I'm going to take away from this and use in everything that I do, which is for whom could this fail? And I think that that's just so important because the AI conversation, as we've talked about so many times, is so focused on all of the possible benefits and all of the all of the the good things that can happen. And and we know that there are many good things that AI can bring. But I think we need to be really thoughtful about you know who's going to get left behind or who might get ignored and who it might actually be negatively impacted uh, if we aren't thoughtful about about this technology. So 
I, I just thought that was 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 so thoughtful and 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 yeah, I think um the question about about applying existing laws versus coming up with new ones, I, I thought that was also a really interesting answer. And it, it it's really gotten my my head spinning um because I I in my own work see so much more attention towards uh the creation of the next generation of laws than the enforcement of the existing ones. And and I think I just wonder why that is and um and you know how we can bring more attention to to these um enforcement questions. But what about you, uh Miriam? What what jumped out at you? What were some of your big takeaways and and kind of you know thought-provoking moments? One thing I really respect and appreciate is that you know, Kathy has these big ideas. She is grappling with um, who can be harmed, for whom does this fail? Um, but then she also takes the time to break it down into a, a practicable uh, process. She has her auditing process in place so that she doesn't just leave you with the big question to resolve on your own. She will give you time and thought and a structure to think about uh, what what the right answer is, how you evaluate it from various different lenses. Um, and so I really like that she has a thoughtful process in place to help you take on this really uh, significant, both in, in its importance and its in the scope of a question. I, I would completely agree with that. And I think one thing that's really special about the way that she approaches that is the way that she really looks at the systems that surround the algorithm as part of her analysis of ethical AI. So it's not just the algorithm itself that is uh, part of that assessment that she does, but it's also the way that an organization works and who has, um, uh, you know, the, um, you know, power inside of an organization um, to make decisions, for example, about how an algorithm is used. And I just, found it very um, refreshing to hear her take this kind of broader perspective, understanding that algorithms are, you know, they don't function on their own. They're embedded within organizations and within systems. And to actually move towards a more ethical AI system, you have to look at those organizational dimensions as well, not just at the algorithm. Yeah, the way she helps us understand, it is not AI that is or is not ethical, its application is what we need to be evaluating. I think that's a really significant point. Um, again, demystifying AI and disembodying it from a superpower that we too often conceive it to be, and instead thinking of it as a tool that we need to consider, we need to evaluate, and we need to apply laws as we would any other tool. Absolutely. And I think, you know, my, my last takeaway, I think, is that I, I just appreciate how pragmatic Kathy is. Uh, as we've discussed before, this conversation tends to be very polarized. There's a utopian vision on the one hand of all the amazing futures we could have with AI. And then there's this incredibly scary dystopian narrative. And what Kathy is saying is, you know, look, it's really going to be somewhere in between and we have agency as companies, as policymakers, to make better decisions that allow us to have better outcomes. It's not a question of, you know, is it going to be all light or all darkness? Um, but we have these moments where we get to make decisions that help us steer things in a more positive direction. And I, just as an example of that, I think um, her uh, charge to policymakers and to the Biden administration to make more clear what it means for companies to be compliant. It's a very small 
practical thing to do, but I think it would actually significantly help companies who want to do the right thing, but aren't sure exactly how to do it. So I just love that she, while recognizing the big problems, the big picture kind of issues and dynamics around AI, she's also able to just be very pragmatic, very practical, and really get into the weeds and and, and, and try to uh, make it easier for people to make good decisions. Yeah, yeah, just to underscore some of the really help, important points you made. Um, I, I think that the fact that Kathy really makes it a democratic process. Uh, all of us have a role to play as a consumer to be aware and to ask these questions of, of those who are selling us uh, the AI products for the government. And she broke it down, you know, with the CFPB, but you know, pointed out that each agency has a role, a really important role in this process. Uh, companies obviously play an important role. Uh, each of us has a significant role to make sure that AI is employed safely and to the best of its ability. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback, and if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to Alex Pena and the NP Agency for their great work and their generous production of this podcast.